Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. I think it, um, it it tells us that the the value of of, uh, of of any enemy's enemy's naval signals at that point in time were not as as uh, as useful as we might have expected them to be. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Bill Reynolds talking about a secret mission to steal some not so secret signals, and he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publishers of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and The Race to the Dan by Andrew Waters, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Bill Reynolds. He's got a great new article about a naval mission to steal secret naval signals. Problem is with a lot of this uh, mission is that the signals really aren't very secret. Uh, But the mission, you know, is a relative success. How much of an impact it had on the larger outcome of the war remains disputed. And Bill Reynolds does a really nice job of kind of laying all the cards out on the table in regards to that issue. This is a lot of fun, uh, for me personally, to talk about this topic. Because, you know, one of the things that's become very fashionable, I think, in the popular culture of the American Revolution over the last decade or so, has been this idea of secret spy rings uh, and espionage. And those things were real. I mean, don't get me wrong. They were real. Uh, But they're also, you know, really excellent fodder for, I think a lot of speculation, and a lot of sensationalism in the field. One of the great things about being a professional historian is that uh, you have to read a lot of historiography, which means a lot of different ways that we've talked about an event like the American Revolution since it happened. How did historians from one era to another discuss these matters? And you kind of see what topics have staying power and what topics tend to go by the wayside. I think this interview and this article with Bill Reynolds is great because it shows that not all espionage is necessarily, you know, James Bond, uh, especially in the 18th century. Some of it's just very practical uh, and just something that needs to be done that isn't necessarily very glamorous. Then again, you know, we love James Bond for a reason because everybody wants to be the spy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bill Reynolds. Bill Reynolds, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're quite welcome, and I and appreciate your asking me. Tell us about your background. Okay, um, I, I'm a retired uh, engineering consultant with degrees in engineering, and and spent uh, 40 years plus in that uh, in that uh, environment. Um, all through that time, I had a, 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 a interest in genealogy, and that, of course, uh, 
resulted in finding a number of Revolutionary War ancestors. Um, I got interested many years ago about wh- what those guys did. What did they experience? What action were they in, et, et cetera? And so I started uh, sort of branching off, if you will, more into historical types of research and finding out uh, just exactly what what people did. That, that resulted uh, in a number of articles all along the way. So I think the first one was in 1980. But the, um, the more, more recently, in, in about, I think it was 2014, I uh, re- was researching the, the original 9th Virginia Regiment. This regiment was captured almost in total at, uh, at Germantown. But I had an ancestor that was in it up to that point. So I researched it, and long, the short story is I an article was published in uh, that I wrote in um, Military Collector and Historian. Well, from that, I, I uh, started looking around at some of the other guys that I was descended from, and one of them was um, a, in a Virginia militia at the siege of Yorktown. And one, when I got looking, I found almost no information about what those guys did. And I'm thinking, okay, there's 5,500 militiamen at Yorktown. They could have been standing around observing. They must have been doing something. So I did a lot of research on that, particularly in uh, in pension applications, and published an article in 2015 in Military Collector again uh, on that. That that sort of led to several other articles, some of which were in Journal of the American Revolution. I, I wrote one on the the uh, American gunners at Yorktown. I got interested because the, some of the militiamen worked uh, uh, or were assigned to the artillery. And so uh, so I got to, to looking at what the artillery did. Anyway, anyway so it, it's one of those typical things. One thing leads to another. You, you know, you chase one rabbit, chase another rabbit. And uh, that, that it resulted in a number of articles, both in the Journal of the American Revolution and the military collector and historian. So that's sort of quickly uh, the background has sort of gotten gotten us up to today anyway. What first drew your interest into this topic? You know, Brady, this one was pure serendipity. Um, I was researching about two years ago. I was researching uh, Henry Knox's contribution, his specific contribution to the Yorktown campaign. Uh, not just his, you know, what the, the artillery did and so on, but what did he do? And that led to an article that was published last year in Military Collector. Well, as I was searching that one, one of the uh, interesting sources that I've, I've found is very hard to, to, to use, but it's, uh, it's rewarding. It's the, the Revolutionary War Miscellaneous Records manuscript file. Um, they're available certain, several ways. One way is through Ancestry.com. Uh, but at any rate, they, there are thousands and thousands of, of frames of uh, miscellaneous records, uh, a lot of them quartermaster, but some military, and so on. And I I, I came across one that um, was a a certificate by Alan McLean, Captain Alan McLean, concerning the, the voyage he made from uh, Head of Elk or Elkton, Maryland, down to the French fleet in 1781. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I, I've read about that somewhere. I know there's a Journal of the American Revolution article or two on that and uh and 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 the his transportation of the the naval signals and I'll, so I set that aside and uh went ahead and finished the Knox article then I I came back to it and started digging and I found that there was a whole lot more 
uh, interesting material about the, the naval signals than, than just that one particular reference that I found. And so I, I started researching, and as one thing leads to another, you know, I built, I built that article around uh, what I found. For those of us who need some background information, what was the state of the naval war in 1781? Yeah, that's that's quite relevant here. Uh, you know, uh, throughout most of the revolution and and, and up up until uh, August the 30th of 1781, the, the British fleet, which was was extremely strong, controlled in, on North American waters, and they did so until uh, Admiral de Grasse brought a very large French fleet uh, to North America, and it arrived. It, it got to Chesapeake Bay August 30th. From August the 30th until, I think it was November 4th that he sailed back to the, to the West Indies. Uh, for, over that period, the French basically uh, had a, large, a larger fleet than the British could muster on, in North America, and they controlled uh, Chesapeake Bay. That's what uh, made the, the Yorktown campaign possible. But anyway, that, that's sort of the, very quickly the state of affairs. So as of, say, October, September and October, when this article I just wrote uh, basically took place, uh, the French had the Chesapeake Bay under control, and, and no, no British fleet, uh, ship could basically get into the bay. So American vessels and French vessels were free to, to, uh, to uh, use the bay entirely. And in fact, I mentioned a moment ago when Alan McLean made his voyage down the bay in, in, uh, in October, uh, it was safe because the French fleet had, had it plugged up. The protagonist of your article is a man named Richard Peters. Tell us about him. Yeah, a fascinating guy, actually. He was a fairly young Philadelphia attorney. Uh, later, after I didn't mention this in the article, but afterwards in the 1790s until he, until he died, basically, for 30-some years, he was a federal district, district judge in Pennsylvania. He was originally appointed by Washington. Um, he was a, a very bright guy, and at the, at the beginning of the war in 1776, uh, he was appointed by Congress to be secretary of the Board of War and, or- and Ordnance. The Congress eventually, uh, originally uh, anticipated that the Board of War would would be the sort of the guiding influence. So you might you m- might almost look at them as as the, the uh, Defense Department today, something like that. But that was sort of their concept. Didn't work out real well, but still, that was the idea. Peters was was not on the board originally. He was the secretary of it. He, he wrote all the letters, took all the notes, and so on. Later on, he became a, a member of the board. What's interesting is that he is, um, he's the one person who was on or associated with the, the board of war for the entire period of, the, of the, its existence, and that was from 1776 until late in 1781 when Congress finally – uh, appointed a, um, a a secretary, uh, I think they call it secretary at war or something like that. At any rate, um, and the, and the board of war sort of went out of existence. But sir, he was a, the one sort of thread of continuity throughout the revolution uh, in terms of dealing with with Washington and and, uh, and and Congress and virtually everyone else associated with the war effort. Um, and as a consequence, he was, you know, he was kind of in a position to see everything that was going on and, and to, to know, uh, 
what 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 was about to happen. And, and as I mentioned in the article, uh, he happened to be at uh, Washington's headquarters in New York when Washington learned that the uh, Cross was bringing a French fleet to the U.S. So so he he was sort of in the know back in, in mid August of seventeen seven uh, seventeen eighty one that. Uh, a French fleet was coming to the U.S. and apparently, and I, had, I use a lot of sort of conditional words here. I, you, you can't prove much of anything at this point, but apparently he re, he thought, okay, um, anything we can do to aid the French at, at, at that point would be good. And later on, as I mentioned, uh, he saw the uh, advertisement of the the signals, the, the naval signals in, in a, a New York newspaper, and thought that they would. Uh, passing those to the French might be useful. So that's kind of kind of how he got involved. He was, but he was sitting right at the center of all the activity in, uh, of directing the, the, uh, the Revolutionary War. Could you talk about naval signals? How did they function? What were they for? Sure thing. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's probably one of the more important points of the entire article and, and, I, and I spent a good bit of time talking, uh, describing them at the beginning of the article. Um, I, I think some uh, some writers have assumed that the the naval signals were some sort of code, uh, not unlike say what uh, what happened during World War II when the uh, when the U.S. broke the uh, Japanese naval codes, that that there were some sort of code that once you discovered them, they were sort of the be all and end all, and that was just not the case. The um, the signals were the, the way an admiral would communicate with his fleet at sea, and when it was often it was spread over a number of, of miles of ocean. Uh, basically, they the signals were a number of very specific commands, and each command had associated with it a certain uh, uh, shape and color of flag that that was. Uh, to be displayed at a certain point on the ship, for example, at the mainmast or at the foremast or at the mizzenmast, and and uh, the signals book laid out what each of those commands was, the flags that represented it, and where on the ship you would expect to see those flags, so that that uh, an admiral on any particular locations, in this case the North American station established what signals uh, governed action by, by his ships. And, um, and then if he wanted, if, he, if the fleet was at sea and, and he wanted them, the whole fleet to act in a certain way, he displayed a certain set of flags and the, uh, the ships, uh, uh, the ship commanders, the captains uh, responded accordingly. Uh, one thing I, I did not mention in the article is that this was a kind of an iffy proposition because oftentimes the, the weather wasn't great. Uh, the uh, one ship might have difficulty seeing a signal. And so the, the um, admirals typically used some of their frigates to, uh, spread out along their line to re- repeat those signals from one ship to another so that, that uh, everybody got the message in a sense. So anyway, it was it was very much a, a, a very uh, a very significant tactical method of, of communication. What it was not was some sort of special code that that uh, 
that uh, only a, a particular, only if you had the code book could you understand it. Um, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but one of the the experts in this this field that talks about naval signals uh, observed later on that uh, that they really were not uh, secret. Uh, they were uh, they were pretty much uh, known to a, to a lot of different people, and, and the fact that these uh, code books or signal books were advertised in a New York newspaper for sale. Um, <laughs> sort of the, the, uh, tells that that story. It, it indicates that they were really not uh, not sacred at all. How did Peters plan to acquire these signals? Yeah, it, it, along about um, I, I forgot. I don't have the article right in front of me, but in late August of 1781, um, the, uh, the 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 guy who was charged with printing those signals. Uh, Rivington in New York, the, the Royal Printer, uh, advertised in his newspaper. He, he was he he both ran a newspaper and ran a, a job printing operation, and um, he advertised in his newspaper for for I think about two months, actually, that uh, the Royal Naval Signal Books were were available uh, for sale at his printing office. Now, got to realize that Royal Naval ships. Um, were a number were sent to New York to uh, sort of reinforce the fleet uh, during this period, uh, during the period of the Yorktown campaign, and so there was a, there was a demand for a number of the copies of these books, and so Rivington was charged with printing them, and he in turn turns around and and advertises them for sale in in his in the New York Gazette, the uh, the, uh, sort of the official newspaper. Um, my theory is I, I I can't prove this, but I, I don't know how Peters would have learned any other way. But the, the, but the reading them in, in that newspaper, the the New York newspapers tended to migrate to Philadelphia uh, by, by one way or another. I, I, I suppose people just there was commerce back and forth of, of a sort, and you can tell from reading Philadelphia newspapers that picked up articles printed in the New York newspapers several days ahead of time, uh, several days ahead of, of, of the Philadelphia printing, uh, that, 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 that occurred, that, that there was this flow of New York newspapers to Philadelphia. So at, at some point, probably late August, uh, Peters must have seen the article. And, and as I said, he earlier, he, he knew that the French fleet was coming to, to uh, North America and assume that here's here's a source of of um, signals of British signals. They must be valuable to the French, so I'll get my hands on them and pass them along. Um, what is what is, we know for sure because he wrote it in several letters is that he recruited an agent to travel up to New York um, and, and obtain a copy of those signals, and then bring them back to Philadelphia and then send them on to the fleet. Um, the, the specifics of that, uh, I searched high and low, and I cannot put my hands on anything more specific than that. But that seems the most likely, uh, the most likely explanation of of what motivated Peters and and how he got his hands on them. You talk about separate missions in your article. Describe the first mission to steal these signals. Sure. Um, First, uh, 
Peters had um, had seen George Washington and his staff and uh, right at the very uh, end of August and beginning of September when the army, the Continental Army passed through Philadelphia on the way to Yorktown. And so uh, a little later on, I think it was the 19th of October, when I, when Peters wrote his letter to um, to Washington saying, Hey, I, I've uh, found a, a source of the of the British signals. Um, in fact, Rivington's printing office in New York is the source. He was describing uh, to Washington, in my mind, he was, he was telling him something he didn't know already, he, something he had not discussed with him the last time he saw him, which was uh, September the fourth. So it was sometime in early September. Uh, Rivington sent his agent into to New York to acquire a copy of the signals. I don't think he stole the signals, by the way. I noticed one of your questions was uh, describe uh, the message to steal them. I, I think, based on the article in the New York newspaper, it's quite likely that uh, uh, Peter's agent went to New York, and he may have offered just to buy a copy. I mean, they were advertised for sale. Why not just offer to buy a copy? In reality, what he probably did was to observe uh, Rivington's printing office. There, there were probably eight or ten or more people working there. Um, he may have found one that that was a, an American sympathizer. One way or another, and some people, by the way, think it was Rivington himself that that was the um, that was the the person who made the, the signals available. Uh, and that could be. I, I don't know. That's that's a topic all all of its own, and one w- that would <laughs> would occupy us quite a bit of time uh, just to discuss it. But m- many others have written on that topic, uh, and frankly, uh, from more knowledge of it than I have. But somebody in Rivington's office, either he or one of his his people, either sold or gave or or made available to uh, Peter's agent a copy of these signals. He, he then, of course, took them back to Philadelphia, and that in that first set, uh, Peters mentions that he took them to the the uh, French minister to the to the U.S. who was located in Philadelphia, who in turn then uh, sent them on to to De Grasse at uh, who by then was uh, was at Yorktown. Uh, that probably happened in mid to late September which is significant because the the only fleet action that occurred during that period was on September 5th, the famous uh, battle off the Capes of Virginia between the, the French and the British fleet. And it's almost certain that uh, the signals did, had not made their way down to the French fleet at that point. So they, they were of no benefit to the, to the French at that period, even though some some people have said that they, they thought they were. I don't think they, they could possibly have gotten there in, in that period of time. Talk about the mission to get the signals to Admiral de Grasse. Yeah. Um, of course, the, the, the next thing that, sort of going back to a minute for a moment to the fact that, that each admiral on a station issued his own set of signals, uh, the first set that, that was issued was was uh, by an admiral who was who was no actually no longer on the North American station Arbuthnot, um, and so Graves, who took over for him, re- reissued the signals, 
and said, uh, we, we're going to use this. They basically said, we're going to use the same signals the last admiral used and, and authorize people to use them accordingly. But it, it's probable that when the, the first mission took place, uh, there, there weren't any copies of grave signals available. Um, as I explained in the article, is a pretty good probability that Graves took all the printed signals with him on, on the uh, the um, the mission to try to save Cornwallis uh, later in October, and uh, the the agent going after the signals had to settle for for whatever was available, which was probably the older signal book. Now the fact that they were the same. That is a complication that, that I don't want to confuse people with, but um, my guess is that the they, they were the agent was told come back and we're we're going to print more of these and come back and you'll get you know the the, the grave signal book. Well, on the the second mission, you can almost date the second mission because um, Peters talks about having a, a copy of the specific signals for the for the Cornwallis rescue mission, if you will. And that was issued by Graves on October 15th. So the the agent must have gotten there within a day or two of that of, of then, 16th, 17th, something like that. Could not have been any later because he had to get uh, to copy the that signal, that set of signals. That was a, a one sheet. Uh, set of signals and then make his way back across New Jersey to uh, to Philadelphia to deliver deliver it to um, to Peters and, and and he did that we know that he did that on on October 19th because that's when uh, Peters wrote his letter to, to to Washington so that can be dated pretty carefully to somewhere between the 16th and or 17th of, of October at any rate, he and um, at that point Alan McLean, who was observing the the condition of the, of the British fleet and, and their preparation for sailing, made their way back to Philadelphia and delivered them to Peters. Peters realized that this was information that De Grasse ought to have pretty quickly, and commissioned uh, McLean to to take them to uh, down to the Chesapeake Bay, which he did. And that, by the way, is it's that voyage that uh, I found the uh, I found mentioned in the, uh, the record that, that started this whole research episode. How did these signals help the Patriot cause in the long term? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a, that's a you know when I was I was searching through all this, uh, my my expectation was you might say the same as Richard Peters' expectation. I, I think Peters expected the signals to be a great benefit to the fleet by allowing to the French fleet by allowing, allowing them to understand the intent of the enemy fleet. I mean, and, and that's what I think I would, I would expect. And I think a, a number of authors uh, of books in, in recent years have made that assumption in, in writing about these signals. Um, you just kind of expect knowing what the other guy is going to do is, is got to be beneficial, right? Well, I think it was a bit more complicated than that. First, the signals, as I've worked out the timeline, the signals did not reach the French fleet before the Battle of the Capes, which was September 5. So there was, I mean, there's obviously no way that they benefited the French at that point. 
Well, that was the only fleet action between those two fleets that occurred in 1781. Uh, when the, the Cornwallis rescue fleet, uh, a rescue expedition took place, which was actually left New York uh, on October 19th and, and arrived off the Virginia Capes um, around the 27th, I think. Um, when that that expedition took place, there, w- there was no, no interaction between the two fleets. The British knew at that point that when they got to, to Virginia, they knew that Cornwallis had surrendered and there was no point in, in, in just blindly attacking the French fleet. There was nothing to be gained by it, so they didn't. So there was no fleet action then, and, and therefore, the, even though the Gras had the signals, um, there was no opportunity to, to observe their use by the British. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a disappointing conclusion. But it's, I think that's the way it was. Um, the, the interesting thing to also is that the Gras, uh, looking at, at the timeline of his response to things, he seems to have been indifferent about the signals. Uh, he, he actually received them from Alan McLean on, on uh, October 26th. He, the next day, he, re, he sent them to, to Washington with a letter saying, uh, I, I've been given these signals. I've looked at them in effect saying, I've been given these signals. I've looked at them. Would, would, I've been told to pass them on to you. And would you send them back to the French minister in Philadelphia? Well, that seems to me like a, a kind of an indifferent response, but, but this is the guy, the Grasse, the French fleet commander who, uh, if, if anyone would have appreciated the, the value of the signals, he would have. And he apparently did not. So it, it tells me that uh, we've all probably been a little bit misled about just how valuable the signals would have been to a to a uh, and, and if you will the commander of the enemy of the enemy fleet. Um, if you think about it a little bit, Brady, uh, it, it makes sense if you think about two fleets at at some distance from each other or approaching each other for battle for one fleet to be able to, to read the other fleet's signals at, at some distance in, in that day um, would have been quite a feat. And I, I'm not sure that they could ever have, have read the signal, consulted the, the enemy signal books, if you had it, and figured out w- what they planned to do any faster than you could have observed what they were doing when, just by watching the other fleet if the other fleet was tacking one way or tacking the other way or wearing or, or doing whatever, you, you just about observe what they were doing as fast as you could read their signals, I think. So we, we probably have everybody associated with this has assigned more value to, to the, uh, these signals than they might have represented to the French fleet. The the other um, the other thing that's that's kind of interesting about all of this is for, for those of us you know that that today understand that if if you saw if you were in New York and you got a copy of a guy's signals you'd if it were today what would you do you'd, you'd scan those electronically and you'd email them to to the guy who needed them and he'd have them within ten minutes of the, the time you got your hands on them or something well. In 1781, that took about 10 days, and that uh, introduces just an entirely different 
um, way of looking at, at, at the value of, 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 of information obtained from the enemy, which is what this was. Uh, in the case of the second mission, it took right at 10 days from the time the agent got his hands on the signals to the time they showed up on the French flagship. And did consider all the, you know, all the different things that could happen over a 10 day period. And, and you, you think, wow, you know, these, it's not like a, it's not like instantaneous information. You, uh, a lot could, could change over a 10 day period and, and, uh, and render the, that, that information possibly useless. So it, it you know, it, it makes a, it makes us look at, um, at, at this whole, uh, uh, both of these missions in, in a different light, I think, than, than if you were trying to think of them as you, as you would today. How does this story help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I, I think the, the two major t- takeaways that I got were, uh, one, that the, the whole time episode, that I think uh, today it's, it's difficult to put yourself in the position of, of the Grasse and, and, and the guys back in that period and, and how long it took them to, to obtain information and, and, uh, and, and, and just, just the whole dynamic of, of a mission like this. I, I think the, the first thing is it, it, it illustrates to us just how slow the communications were then. And, um, and maybe it helps us understand better the conditions they were operating under. And, and the second is that, I think it, um, it it tells us that the the value of, of these signals probably uh, of of any enemy's enemy's naval signals at that point in time uh, were not as as uh, as useful as we might have expected them to be uh, under um, you know, if we if if we if we were thinking they were they were some kind of special code. We, they they might have a certain value, but that's not the case at all. The, these signals were were a fairly standard set of signals and and um, well well understood by each fleet and probably didn't did not represent some kind of major uh, uh, clandestine break breakthrough. Bill Reynolds, thanks again. You're quite welcome. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.